Hello, welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky, the podcast where we catch up on the latest nudes inside of the anime industry and go through every two weeks or so to catch up on specific topics based around the anime medium. So the weather's been kind of off and on as of late. I've finally been able to catch up on a handful of shows that's been going through. The spring season has been relatively decent in terms of the anime that has been coming out, and there have been a handful of new surprises popping up here and there. And although I've been keeping up with my end of the bargain, and I've got about eight shows setting up going through week by week, I've finally been able to catch up on a handful of other things that have been popping up in my feed. Finally ended up getting through Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and I understand that that's not necessarily part of the conversation, so I guess something a little more poignant to the conversation, and something that's a little more referential, well, I mean, definitely referential, I finally got through all three seasons of Genshiken. And I honestly have a feeling, in comparison to the amount of insight and the different perspective that it was able to give to what anime fandom was in the middle of the 2000s, especially in Japan as of late, related to Comicat and the amount of series that were going through and the age of physical media still high on the rise, with internet not necessarily catching up to its grand uh, heyday until the 2010s. I feel like I can talk about it for an entire podcast, so I'll definitely save that for another day. But besides that, in terms of news that has been going through the majority of the industry now, we're going to be having a dynamic duo returning for the first time since 2015. The One Punch Man Helmer, Shingo Natsume, and who was the director of its first season, is going to reunite <laughs> Sorry. Is going to reunite with Madhouse Studios for an original sci-fi survival anime by the name of Sunny Boy. And so Shingo Natsume has done a handful of work over the past 10 years in terms of the first season of One Punch Man, the Territory Inspection Department uh, mystery series of Akka, as well as a handful of episodes surrounding Space Dandy, which is a big recommendation on my end. But this is the first time that Natsume and the studio has essentially done anything together since 2015, considering that with the success and the ridiculous production that the two of them were able to combine with all the staff that were able to animate and produce such a well-rounded work in terms of its first season. We don't need to talk about the second season in terms that it was a different director and a different studio and an entirely different reasoning behind it, but it was a fantastic product that they were able to make and come together with. But this time, it's actually going to be an original one, in the sense that Sunny Boy is a science fiction ensemble drama that centers around 36 boys and girls of varying ages, most of them from high school who have been transported from their tranquil daily lives to a school adrift in an alternate dimension, where they must survive with the new superpowers that they have been granted. So, considering that there's, this is actually going to be coming out by the end of 2021 has got me kind of curious. It's not necessarily going to be high on my priority list, but I'm going to keep my expectations to a minimum just so I can at least not necessarily downplay the combination of talents that we have going around here, but still, there's no reason to get extremely hyped considering that it's different to, with directors can't always have a 100% batting average, there's always going to be something in between, there's always going to be something that's going to be kind of twisting and turning, and as much as I don't want to be too pessimistic about it, I'll just, you know, wait and see what happens. And even though it was expected, not entirely surprised that um, Vancouver's Anime Revolution convention has been finally officially axed, at least for this year, they're expecting, considering with the immunization and vaccination rates that we've been pumping out throughout the majority of the year, that we're going to be able to finally go and attend their summer 2022 section that's going to be in July 29th to the 31st of next year. And I'm just, <laughs> oh man, I miss conventions, man. I really do. I miss live events. I miss music. I miss going to the movies. I miss... Everything that you can essentially go through and experience as an anime fan, that everything has been kind of denied throughout the completely legitimate circumstances that we've been going through. But man, like, concerts were just the biggest acts for me in terms of stuff that I've been able to miss over the past two years. And it's definitely understandable that we have not achieved the, the numbers and the rate that would make this an event safe enough to go to. But considering that this is going to be the second year in a row where it's been cancelled, it is going to be building up to quite the event. I mean, 2022 is just going to be building up towards all events in general to be trying to catch up for the amount of lost time that we've been going through over the past two years, and I legitimately can't wait to go through. Now, I know what I said. I know I wasn't going to mention Demon Slayer Infinity Train, 
I, I knew I wasn't going to push that through. But this one, this one event that essentially happened, which was just so comical and so out of left field, that I guess I just had to notify on it. The Demon Slayer film was briefly available on the PlayStation Store. It was up for a good seven hours out of nowhere, where you were able to purchase both the dubbed and the subbed version of the film and watch it from your PlayStation Network and through your PlayStation console. Like, just completely out of nowhere. It was removed after those seven hours were placed, and they already offered refunds to those who were able to purchase it before the deadline happened, but the fact that you could have legitimately gone, bought, and watched the movie and then immediately get a refund in in turn was kind of ridiculous. Now, this did come out, of course, after it aired in Japan, after it got its first uh, North American release inside of the entirety of the States, and I would imagine the majority of the people who have wanted to see it would have already been able to see it. But the fact that this came out at such a random interval and such a random time before the Japanese Blu-rays were even released, because I think those guys are going to be coming out in either July or August, it's absolutely ridiculous to kind of see like somebody quote-unquote drop the ball because it could be a little bit of a mixed bag on how it was able to go through there. But I'm also legitimately surprised because I'm in Canada, I haven't been able to watch it, and even with those high-quality streams being online for that length of time, I'm legitimately surprised that nobody was able to jump on that to get decent rips. Because I will admit that if it doesn't come out in Canada by the end of August, then it's going to be a good chance that by the time the the Japanese Blu-rays come out and really decent high-quality rips are going to be available on the internet, I'm finally going to have to cave in and just completely, like, go through and finally watch the thing. Although I will admit, if it does get a Canadian release, even after I do consume it and watch it, going to see it, especially a Euphoto production with cinema-style speakers and sound systems, that would just be an experience in of itself. So, regardless of what's going to be happening, I'm probably going to be watching this movie twice, at least. And in terms of sequels that... I mean, that is the majority of the stuff that I, that has been coming through and I've been watching, at least for nearly the first half of 2021, is that there have been so many sequels that were pushed through and weren't able to air in 2020 based on the COVID restrictions and everything else, not having the productions actually be able to finish the majority of their work. But in terms of a sequel series that I am legitimately excited about and just recently got announced, Made in Abyss is going to be getting a full second season. Not another movie. While Dawn of the Deep Soul was great, the fact that we're going to be getting another television-length season of Made in Abyss that is potentially going to catch us up all the way to the story that the manga has been able to go through, I'm really excited, and I'm really curious to see how it's going to be going through. It has been announced, and it is going to air next year, sometime in 2022. And I am legitimately curious to see how they're actually going to be able to pull this through, but considering the success that they were able to somehow acquire, especially through the limited release uh, film... Dawn of the Deep Soul that were that was able to get out and be streamed online in the midst of this pandemic around the same time last summer. I am kind of surprised that it was able to go through. But of course, because of how successful this series is, I'm not legitimately surprised that it was able to go through and get it. The only thing that I'm curious about is it is not complete. It is def- the manga and the story is definitely ongoing. And this might be the last piece of Made in Abyss content that we will get for a while. But it is more than enough to work around, and it is more than enough to keep us satisfied, regardless of how long we're going to have to wait. Because hell, we're anime fans. Quarantines, long waits, hiatuses, we're all used to that shit. So I did feel like, going off of the Made in Abyss news, I wanted to kind of get a handful of podcasts talking about music considering that with Made in Abyss, one of the biggest contributors of its success was the soundtrack that was able to be compiled and supplied by Kevin Penkin, who is a really odd enigma that has been introduced into the world of the anime industry as of late, considering that he is an Aussie composer, an Australian composer, and the majority of his work, uh, like, from 2011 onwards, was mostly through video games. He had his first anime essential credit in the form of Nor 9, and he was also slated on the production list and on the composing side 
of the Under the Dog fan Kickstarter-backed OVA. And it wasn't until his name really came into the limelight when Maiden Abyss finally went through. Because the two major tracks that were able to bring his name to light would have definitely been Underground River. Traveling the ether back to you To a land so far away I feel the distance in between And a first season capping track known as Tomorrow What he was able to accomplish and what he was able to bring to the table, even though Maiden Abyss was such a polished production through and through when it came to the backgrounds, the monster designs, the characters, the dynamic action, the like, Maiden Abyss is just such an all-round, like, <laughs> superb show. And that's where I thought I wanted to start this month, but I th was thinking that I might as well save that for the next week. And what I decided to focus on this week's episode was essential just unique soundtracks. Soundtracks that, of course, are beyond the norm, something that could only work inside of the show that they were tasked to support, and what it was able to accomplish and what that sound brought to the show as a whole. And there are more than enough examples to go through, but there are a couple that I want to focus on specifically by my personal taste, because... Music is subjective. Everybody likes and doesn't like what they like and don't like. But the ones that are able to enhance the story and meld so well with the production in themselves is just such a big factor for me in deciding on what, on if a soundtrack did its job correctly. Because it is one of my like personal favorite pieces because I'm definitely a lot more based through melody and how the songs kind of react with the world that they've been created in and how they enhance the experience that at least the animation and the color and motion is able to emphasize. And it's, I guess it's nothing more than dressing on top of an already finely cooked and polished dish, but when it is done right, it amplifies the experience to such a greater degree that it becomes so much more memorable and it becomes so much more impacting whenever anybody looks back on a specific series that they were going through. And that always comes back to me whenever I watch Main Abyss. But in terms of one of the first examples that I can go through, which is not really much of my forte, and I highly doubt that I will ever, ever get into any of the main series installments regarding this, but um, Gundam. Not Gundam Wing, not Gundam Double O, not Gundam G. <laughs> I, I know I'm forgetting dozens upon dozens of titles, but those are the first ones that come to mind. For me, it was the soundtrack to Gundam Thunderbolt, which was a two, it was like two mini-series of OVAs that um, came out around the mid-2010s. And it was not, of course, it was just the same deal were put into the perspective of the soldiers that are surrounding the war the, in the main conflict of the series, but we we're focused on two major pilots, one on each side, between the Federation and between Zeon. And the Federation pilot, he is, whenever he is out and fighting with his Gundam and with his machine inside of the fields of war, he listens to music, and for him in particular, it's jazz. And that jazz soundtrack is able to infuse so much energy and dynamicism for his movements and his actions when he's in the middle of a fight, in the sense that, in his own words, it makes him feel free. The improvisation, the dynamic changes in tempo, and the amount of different variations and situations that you can place any different set and verse of a jazz soundtrack into any other situation inside of the field of battle is what gives him his motivations, it's what gives him his strength and his creativity. 
And then on the opposite side of the field, you have one of the soldiers of Xeon, who is a very pop-heavy, but not the regular pop that you would think. Probably like 80s, 70s pop that has a very, mon not monotone, but straight-laced tempo, which is definitely fits in very well with his character as mostly being a sniper, as mostly being somebody who is very static and sits and <laughs> not sits where he's supposed to, but basically just keeps his own tempo and his own train of thought in a very straight and very direct motion. But of course, not only does the pop kind of keep him in that very zen state whenever he's supposed to take his shots and to place them with pinpoint perfection to eliminate his enemies but also help his comrades on the battlefield. But when he's forced into situations that are beyond his pay grade, when he is put into more direct and violent and dynamic combat as the series progresses... You'll see that the pop that he listens to throughout the majority of his battles also elevates and climbs, and it leaves a hill and starts slowly progressing into the hill that he's able to finally surmount and finally able to go through. And as the tempo rises, and the, the chorus goes through, and the tempo increases, and everything starts to crescendo into the main chorus of all the songs that he's listening to, that is where he reaches his greatest strengths, and that is where he is able to take the majority of his intellect and the majority of his experience inside the battle, and with the new machine that he is supposed to pilot, that is when he is at his strongest. That is when he is the perfect soldier. But switching over to a more ridiculous and crazy setting of mechs, Grenlagon. It has a really good mix of just, especially with uh, the opening theme, Sorairo Days, which always brings everybody, like, to the forefront, and it really, like, raises everybody's morale and goes through, and is definitely one of the more impactful openings of anime history. But then... The soundtrack that is implemented, yes, it does have really good highs, but it also has really crushing lows, depending on where the characters are at a specific time. And it does really well to split and have that kind of dichotomy between the soundtrack and really go through. But in terms of the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the tracks that is able to go through, it has a really good... Like, a lot of them that stand up in my mind have really good build-ups and really good payoffs to lift the spirits of all that are involved. Thrust through the heavens with your spirit would have definitely been the perfect example of this. And not only is its soundtrack able to raise the morale of everybody around you, it is also able to raise the morale of both sides. And not only have the characters being dynamic and impending and somebody that you want to root for, also carrying some of the most badass villain or antagonist entrances throughout the entirety of anime, in terms of character themes, which is, which is what I wanted to specify, Viral's theme when he is introduced, is just such a dynamic, and you know this man is a threat. You know he is a monster, both literally and figuratively. And there is no enemy of his that he cannot break. But then, of course, the one that always comes to everybody's mind when they think of the soundtrack behind Garen Lagan. It's always the choir. It's always the row. It is always the piano that strings together everybody and harmonizes everybody's spiral energy into one and gives probably the best heroes at their darkest moments creeping up 
and rising from the ashes and being able to bring forth the strength that they had within them all along and to not only crush their enemies and avenge the fallen that they have lost along the way, but to essentially just be a character theme or a ensemble theme in of itself through Libra Me from Hell. Do the impossible, see the invisible, row, row, fight the power. It is just such a good example of something that is definitely not... It, didn't, it doesn't fit into the story. It doesn't really match the tone or anything that the world sets up. Like, it, it's the only, like, example of choirs ever being, like, introduced inside of this world in particular. But even though it doesn't match the majority of the soundtrack, it just fits in the best ways possible to not only support the protagonist that it leads up, but also kind of give a sense of gravitas and weight to the enemies that we have to actually defeat at the end of the day in order to move forward. And so it's like, yeah, Grand Lagan is just kind of like such a ridiculous example in that sense, considering that, I mean, to be fair, along with a lot of the other examples that I'm about to show, it doesn't fit in, at least it doesn't sound like it fits in to what you think the majority of the story and what the world is going to go through, but it just works so much better than any other like standard guitar riff or just ridiculously barring drum solo or anything else that could have been used in combination to try and be like, these characters are badass. They are the ones that are going to rise up and defeat the evils that go through. But it just does... it Because of how unique it was, it always just sits in your mind and it always brings you back to Garen Lagan whenever it comes on and whenever you're able to re-experience that kind of energy and that kind of sound to bring you back into the moment. Now, another dynamic sort of soundtrack that, of course, I don't really have as much experience with because I haven't watched any of these series, but if I said Initial D, probably the first word to spring to your mind would just be Eurobeat. It would be gas, gas, gas. Beat of the Rising Sun. It would be running in the 90s. And it's just such a ridiculous addition to what is just literally a driving, drifting sports manga. But what it's been able to accomplish, especially with the anime adaptation since the late 90s, is just nothing short. Because it still cemented itself over 20 years later as one of the most notable like additions and soundtracks to the majority of anything inside of the medium. Which is kind of ridiculous, but it's also... Such a testament to how well it was still able to weasel itself into not only the world that it's inhabiting, but also make it imperative to listen to. It, the show wouldn't be itself without Eurobeat. Like, without the soundtrack and this really odd merging of sound and machinery, it would never be the same. You could not think of Eurobeat without Initial D, and you could not think of Initial D without Eurobeat. So moving through just a couple of years into the future, which is also something that I haven't been able to listen to or watch until as of just recently, but it's something that people would still recognize if you were given the chance to listen to it, because this is essentially Daft Punk. Of course, Daft Punk, I would say the first notable one that goes through in terms of like American cinema would definitely go to the hands of um, Tron Legacy, and the amazing amount of work that they were able to go through in infusing their music into that kind of digital world that they were able to inhabit. But before all of that, in 2003, their second album 
was put out in the form of an hour-long, like, theatrical vinyl or theatrical soundtrack. Because there is little to no, if not any, dialogue in this film, but Interstellar 5555 is just a cumulative music video of the enti- of Daft Punk's entire 2003 album. It's just, it's such a unique breed in of itself because it, there's not really much that would be able to go through. I mean, it was a Japanese-produced um, venture, considering that they went to Toei Animation and it was directed by Kazuhiro Takenochi, but the songs that have been playing on that album ever since, and I would imagine whenever the music videos went through either on MTV or through the majority of the news outlets for the 2000s, you would always see these blue people just dancing and having the time of their lives, and it was kind of just something that what did really feel kind of normal, but also like kind of abstract because of what the aliens were. And it definitely makes sense, considering that it's still there is still a story behind this quote-unquote movie, because it's just the majority of these citizens on an alien planet uh, playing to a packed audience. And so they end up getting kidnapped so that they're able to enhance the people who have kidnapped them, trying to enhance their powers from various worlds to acquire their gold records with which these dark woods could rule the universe. And it's kind of ridiculous, but, like, if you throw that in the midst of what the music was able to portray and what they were able to accomplish throughout the majority of the runtime of this, it's honestly just, like I said before, just music video after music video being strapped on one after the other after the other. And, like, at the end of the day, you could throw these on and anybody would be able to give them a listen and still, to this day, recognize the majority of the tracks. I mean, of course, there's always one more time... as well as the closing theme to the film, Aerodynamic. But then the major background to one of the most lucrative collaborations inside of the 2000s with Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. And it's such a unique feature in of itself that shows just how well music can be blended to animation and even without any sort of dialogue outside of the music in of itself, create a compelling story. And if you like the band, you'll be treated to some cartoons playing over the top of their own Discovery album. Now, it's been a long time since I ended up watching this. And of course, because it's part of the big three It was something that I was not really a part of, but was able to experience in just bits and pieces, because this next section is going to be focused on Bleach. And while that's a little bit of an odd, like, number to go through back to one of the big three shonens of the 2000s, there's honestly a lot that can be said about at least the early part and what the series was able to accomplish in its first two arcs. Not really, you know, being too up to speed or not really having the most decent pacing when it came to the first arc and Ichigo getting his powers and everything leading around, but just the entirety of what everybody says to be the best part of the series, which is kind of good and bad because you would just say, hey, guess what? Uh, Your anime peaked in its second arc and it's just, oh, well, that doesn't really help. But yeah, the Soul Society arc is just such a, (laughs) it's such an amalgamation and it's such an interesting piece of shonen history. Especially with how each battle goes through and what Ichigo has to achieve in order to find his new powers and his new sense of self and his new hurdles that he has to go through in the sense of the Soul Society captains. And the music that accompanies it is played on loop with so many different battles over the course of the series, considering that the only three arcs that I've watched of Bleach 
were essentially the first arc leading up to it, the Soul Society arc uh, almost immediately after, and then the Eisen arc, or part of the Eisen arc, which is, which is basically the end of the fight, or at least the end of what the uh, what the majority of the characters have to face because it's just kind of like, hey, this guy's become really, really powerful, and, you know... We have to fight him at some point, but everybody fights and everybody loses and everybody goes through. So it was a really odd place to jump into. And I think the only reason why that was the case was because I'm pretty sure I was watching it week by week at that point. So, uh, yeah, you could just kind of just throw me by the wayside and try and go through. And as, as much as everybody says it, like the only major parts, even though we know that Bleach is going to be getting an adaptation of its... I can't remember what it is, the Thousand Year War. It, Bleach is going to be coming back in either 22 or 23 which has got a lot of fans hyped, and for me, I couldn't necessarily care, considering that that was a little beyond what I was, like, interested in way back then. Not Okay, not necessarily what I was interested in. I didn't have anything to watch in Bleach until I started watching it back in, like, 2012. So that was kind of ridiculous. But besides that, the different types of music that they were able to go through, especially with battle themes on the precipice of defeat... And even though I've only seen, like, bits and pieces of what the Arnkar arc was able to go through, but Clavar la Spada. There are definitely good themes related to the antagonists and what kind of challenges the main characters have to face, but there's one battle theme, in particular, like, a character theme that always stood out to a lot of people, especially when it came down through into the Soul Society arc, which would be number one. This was Ichigo's battle music. This was <laughs> this is this was Ichigo's essential motivational theme to try and build not only him but his friends back up from becoming just this low uh, high school soul society kid to try and save his friend beyond all parts of the system. It legitimately gave everybody a chance to stand up and cheer and motivate our hero. And not only, of course, did it motivate us and themselves, it was also like one of the most badass accompanying tracks to kind of give Ichigo that kind of structure and that kind of status as the badass shonen protagonist. And everybody was just losing their minds whenever this would come through whether he was fighting a captain, whether he was fighting a common soldier. When this track came on and Ichigo slid onto the frame, everybody was like, oh yeah, shit's about to get crazy. So as much as I don't think Bleach is on as high of a pedestal as I believe it should be, considering that I was just post-Big 3 to really give it a fair opportunity and to try and see what everybody was going through, I still think that at least the moments that I've seen and the moments that Ichigo was able to accumulate over and pay off in much satisfying ways is more enough to give it praise. And then heading back to the 2000s as well is probably my favorite quote-unquote lo-fi hip-hop music coming through, and all of that surrounds New Jabez. And so what New Jabez, Fat John, and Force of Nature were able to accomplish in the midst of their production and sound design in Samurai Champloo, I don't think another one matches it. On top of the show being badass in of its own right, please go watch it. Samurai Champloo is a fantastic, not only comedy and drama and parody of most, like, samurai hip-hop flashbacks, but it's also a damn good action show, too. 
and the soundtrack, like, <laughs> complements that to such a large degree. I mean, the collaboration between these guys and what they were able to compose and accomplish and fit so well into the world that Shinichiro Watanabe envisioned when he was directing the show is, like, just nothing short of masterful. And on top of the fact that this probably has two of my favorite opening and ending themes where, okay, not necessarily two, but my favorite opening and ending duo in anime history, I mean, for crying out loud, man, it's Battle Cry. And leading into that, into something a lot more mellow and has a much fresher rhythm, Shiki no Uta. It's just such a good duo. It's such it it complements so well, considering that it's a really low melodic tone. It's like even with Battle Cry leading into Shiki, they've got a really good connection going. And they both just fit so well into the story and leading into the specific episodes where the stories that they're trying to tell. Because at least outside of those not the tracks can either be vocalized or they can be just straight rhythm. They can just have their own tempo, regardless of the situation, considering that it will always match whatever the show needs. Especially with some of the battle themes, like Sneak Chamber. <laughs> There's just so much energy and so much unique flair that Nujabes and the rest of the cast were able to influence, and especially with, uh, as on top of a stellar English dub, mind you, I mean, Steve Bloom just really, I mean, not only Steve Bloom, but I mean, Kari Walgren as Fu and Kirk Thornton as Jin also, like, just make this trio such a well-rounded um, group that we are essentially able to follow through the majority of the episodes that kind of uh, follow through. And although a lot of it is episodic, considering that even though the end goal of this series is to find the samurai that smells of sunflowers, a lot of us just get caught up in the happenings that follow around their, around their journey. Because the beats and the vibes that the Samurai Shampoo... <laughs> Jesus. The beats and the vibes that the Samurai Shampoo soundtrack are able to incorporate into this world that is at once a fantasy, but also um, a really well-placed historical bit. It's nothing short of impressive. And an incredibly good listen, but also an incredibly good watch. And so there are two more titles that I did want to get behind. And both of them have very similar veins into what they incorporate their soundtracks with, and they've resulted in essentially like my two favorite anime soundtracks of all time, in the sense that the first one I'll talk about is simply one that, of course, everybody's heard about and probably everybody's going to watch and has varying opinions on, but I'm still going to go through it anyways with your name. And what the Radwimps were able to accomplish incorporating not only their vision, but Makoto Shinkai's vision and melding them all up into essentially where a lot of it is just anime music video, the movie, with um, <laughs> with with the different um, theme songs and the majority of the tracks that uh, the Radwimps were able to incorporate inside of their story. Like, there would be no Your Name without Radwimps, and as much as there, and Radwimps has definitely been doing a lot of work throughout the majority of the 2010s, this was definitely their biggest, oh, this, this was their big splash. This is what they were really able to incorporate, and how they were really able to express themselves in the majority of this. Because they had had success throughout the mid to late 2000s, and a handful of albums that went through the early 2010s. 
like for <laughs> but once 2016 hit and this film was released like that was it like it, it was all over they, they are now a worldwide renowned name especially with what they were able to contribute and what they were able to go through because of course everybody knows the opening tracks they know of dream lantern they know of zen zen zens and they know sparkle and Nandemonaya is a really fantastic close to this film, but I really do enjoy a lot of the stuff that moves through and a lot of the tracks that make up the majority of the middle of the theme because we do they do take the majority of those. They do take Dream Lantern, they do take Zen Zen Zens, and they do take all of these themes and kind of spread them out, because that is the only negative thing that I have to say about this soundtrack, is because a lot of the middling portions of the movie that use this music are kind of just string and piano adaptations of the fir- of the first and last tracks of the movie. Because, I mean, of course there's a lot of it that goes through, but then you have stuff like Mitsuha's theme. Also, Katawarae Doki, or Twilight. And while they do take a lot of their bases from Dream Lantern, it just adds such an emotional touch to the themes and the scenes that surround it, that there's no way that this movie could have worked without this kind of soundtrack. The baseline would not have been enough, and it's really difficult to try and get this across, considering that it is one of my like favorite perks, especially when things essentially get turned into a music video, and the melodies and the soundtracks and the diegetic sounds like all meld together and all really set through, whether whether it is diegetic or non-diegetic, and it just matches so well to the tempo of the scenes, and it matches all the feelings that we're trying to go through and emphasize and kind of bring everything up around it. And on top of everything else, it's a really good soundtrack in terms of its sound design and the majority of the melodies that they're able to go through and push through, and Radwimps have definitely been able to capitalize on that, and I really appreciate that they did, and I'm really glad of their success, because this movie, regardless of the acclaim that has been going through, it should still be a must-watch to anybody going through and actually being able to experience this for yourself. And so the last soundtrack that I kind of want to talk about is kind of the same deal in the sense that It was mostly done by another band. They were able to incorporate and add their influence to not only the sound of the show, but kind of the movement and the dynamicism that brings out the majority of the scenes. And that is through Fuli Kuli, in particular with their collaboration with The Pillows. Because Fuli Kuli is just like such a enigma in when it was produced back in I think it was 2000 was the initial release and what it was able to go through with the reruns on Toonami and even though I didn't watch those its influence has spread so far and wide that if anybody has anything to say about just soundtracks and uh, like anti-productions or OBAs or anything that's related to its kind of project then they always point towards Fooly Cooly and if you are a rock fan if you are like hoping that or at least trying to experience, like, what would it be if my favorite rock band was able to incorporate their sound and basically compose their own music for a multimedia project? It's like, bro, go to Fooly Cooly, FLCL, Furikuri, like, what, however you want to describe it, their music and what they were able to accomplish with this project is just nothing short of, like, fantastic. On top of the fact that Shinkichi Mitsune and Yoji and Okindo kind of just, they liked 
the band bef- in the middle of, or at least before the production of this even started, and they kind of just sent in a request and were just kind of like, hey, we like your music, we kind of want to see if you want to collaborate with our with this project that we're going to be putting out next year, or over the next couple of years, and we just kind of want to, um, I was curious if you could do a cover of one of uh, this song, and really go through, and the Pillows were like, not really fully into the idea, and so their initial response is like, ah, fuck this guy, we're going to... We're going to, like, produce either, I think, I don't know if it was a new song or if it was something off of their recent catalog, but they sent them what would evidently be known as that everybody comes through at the end of of every episode, Ride on Shooting Star. And so they sent them that, and he was like, that's not what we asked for, but we love it anyway, and we want to incorporate it into our show. And so that was kind of the beginning of their relationship when they were kind of going back and forth on a lot of the stuff, and you hear a lot of the guitar riffs in the background, and like, it's really incredibly harsh, just like a, just like an early kid. I'm trying to figure out, like, Nauta, I think he was 12. Yes, he was 12 years old. And so it's like a preteen, kind of like going about, oh, like, this city sucks, everybody, everybody who I love hates me, uh, and there's, n- I hate this town, and nothing exciting happens, it's always boring. It's always boring, and nothing happens, which could not be the more opposite from the truth, but, you know, a 12-year-old mindset kind of just goes places that nobody would expect to be logical. But, I mean, the soundtrack and the songs that get influenced and incorporated into the majority of the scenes that go throughout the show is honestly, like, (laughs) pretty ridiculous at the beginning, but then they meld and they give so much style and presence and, like, such a unique sense of being that it's kind of the same deal. You could not imagine Fudikuri without the pillows. It's just not possible. And, I mean, throughout the majority of the show's and throughout the majority of the episodes that kind of release throughout the majority of the story, like, there's always something that brings you back to it. And, of course, there's always ones that they would go through. There was always going to be a unique battle theme um, towards nearly every episode. So, of course, you did... There was no opening theme. And you had Ride on Shooting Star as your ending theme. That was honestly, like, it's... I think it's still, like a common theme of a lot of the stuff that I've talked about this episode. One of my favorite EDs of all time. But then for the rest of the series, you would have stuff like in the... But in this case, for episodes two and three, you would have instant music. In episode 5, you would have Runner's High. And I'm pretty sure that almost every single episode of the OVA ended on one of the more iconic ones, Little Busters. With a kiss of the future Many kids don't need the masters Just the way they rose a little process Oh yeah But it would be a shame to me if I didn't try to incorporate honestly my favorite battle theme that goes through Haruko's fight with the big hand and that is Last Dinosaur. And 
it's just the style and how well the two meld together, considering that the the writer and the director and the band were just so closely intertwined. I mean, in terms of your name, Shinkai rewrote scenes based on the music that he was sent in order for them to more well articulate and more structure out how the scenes were going to play out based on the music. And then for Furikuri, it's just such a different beast, but the the creature that essentially goes through and with a lot of the creatures that they battle throughout the majority of the shows are just so well-in-tuned and their ferociousness and their fighting style is so well in tune and in character for the music that it's just so easy to relate and get caught up in the majority of the fights and all the dynamic events that go throughout the course of this series. But like I said in one of my previous episodes, do not watch Alternative. Do not watch Progressive. You don't need to burden yourself with that. You do not need to even come close to attempt to try and think about anything for those quote-unquote sequel series. It's not worth it. Nobody I've ever seen thought this series was a good addition. The six-episode OVA in the beginning of Fully Cooley is all that you need. And even though they got the pillows to come back on for Progressive and Alternative, I will admit a lot of that music is good. It is not well implemented and it is not used correctly or it doesn't even mesh with any of the scenes or any of the tension or any of the themes that the show was trying to convey. It was just such a ridiculous dichotomy and misunderstanding of what the music was bringing to the project that they just thought if the pillows were there, then everything would just kind of meld back to what they used to be. And it didn't. But back on track, at least fully coolly, what it was able to accomplish, it is just such an important coming-of-age story that... As well as the music was able to infuse that kind of energy and that kind of emphasis on what the characters were feeling at the time, it did itself more than a service by letting them come in and try and understanding why the music was so important and why they were able to collaborate on such a close degree. Because it works. Having that kind of communication works. Not through just visuals but through the audio in of itself as well. And the music will more than enough push itself forward along with the material that it is accompanying. Well, I definitely appreciate you stopping by and listening to the first episode of Music in May. I'm probably going to try and keep this to going together as a scene because, like I said at the beginning of the episode, this was mostly just about unique soundtracks. Um, composers are probably going to be the next episode's topic and jumping through and kind of figuring out how the main ones have been able to consistently produce on such a high quality and such a high level inside of an industry where it makes it incredibly hard to do so. But yeah, also I'm thinking about probably moving these episodes over to Tuesdays instead of Mondays and just trying to figure out how that is going to rotate. Because it is, although it's really simple to come through over the weekends and try and get the recordings through, just the editing in of itself afterwards kind of makes it difficult to approach right after the recording is finished, but then also find the time in between to try and make sure everything else is going through and settled. I apologize for being late on my part, considering that it's been a pretty hectic week with moving a lot of stuff around and catching up with a couple of people that I hadn't seen quite a bit, so I really hope that you'll be able to uh, write this off and I'll be able to get back to the regular scheduling next week. So cheers. Thanks. (laughs) 